Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, this morning I'm super excited to begin a new sermon series, and this is going to be a 30-week study, or excuse me, a 38-week study, which will put us into the early part of next summer, and it happens to be over the Gospel of John, one of uh, the all-time favorite Gospels, but not only that, one of the all-time favorite books in the Bible for many, many people, and for good reason. What I want to do today is just kind of give you a brief introduction to John's gospel, kind of an overview, but then we'll jump into the very beginning, what's called the prologue, a very poetic and beautiful and very profound teaching. So we're going to kind of split the morning with the overview and then the prologue. This gospel, we believe, was written by the disciple named John. And that's why it gets the name, John's Gospel. John was a fisherman from Galilee. He was uh, obviously uh, one of the 12. He was the brother of James, who was his fishing partner, the son of Zebedee. You might remember these guys, when they were younger, were called the Sons of Thunder, probably because of their very aggressive personality and spirit. He was also a very close friend with his fishing partners, Peter and Andrew. And then John, we read later, we find out that he was part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. And there were three of them. It was his brother, James, and Peter. And they had special access and privileges to Jesus and knew things about him that others did not know. As we read uh, through John, we're going to find out that this is a very simple gospel in terms of language, very simple language. In fact, scholars have noted that even a child, if you were a child in the first century who was trained in Greek, you could read fluently the gospel of John. So very simple language, but quite profound in its deep theology. This uh, kind of led one of the early church fathers named Augustine to make this statement about the Gospel of John. He said, the Gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim, yet shallow enough for a child not to drown. And what that means is really that children can read this Gospel and gain so much from it and understand much about it, as well as adults who are studying some deeper theological issues. It's something that a brand new believer can read and understand and benefit greatly from. In fact, uh, I've always considered John the starting point for a new believer in Christ. But it's also something that somebody that has been walking with Jesus for a long time can really do a deep dive in and benefit greatly from. I would also say it's very appropriate for an unbeliever to read the Gospel of John. If you have an unbeliever that's curious about Jesus or certainly uh, 
a seeker, uh, open to the possibility that Jesus is who he says he was and wants to know more, I would guide them to the gospel of John. So whether you're a, a new believer, whether you're a child, whether you're an adult, whether you're an older believer, whether you're not even a believer, but open to the truths about Jesus, this is the perfect gospel for you to read and study. So something for all of us. One of the unique things about John is that, there, that 90% of what we read in this gospel is new information about Jesus. That's pretty extraordinary. Information that we do not find in the other spiritual biographies of Jesus that are found in our scriptures, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. New information. For instance, the very first miracle that Jesus performed, changing the water to wine at the wedding in Cana, is only found in the Gospel of John. The story about the Pharisee, Nicodemus, that came to Jesus at night and asked questions and was told by Jesus that to become part of the kingdom, to find the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. That story is only found in the Gospel of John. The same is true for the Samaritan woman at the well, only found in John. The story about Jesus raising his best friend Lazarus from the dead, only found in the Gospel of John. So these stories and many others are unique to John. And so if we didn't have John and his Gospel, we would be missing out on so many important truths about the life of Christ. It was written by this, we believe, an elderly apostle. Technically, John is actually anonymous. It doesn't tell us who wrote it. Church tradition tells us it was John the disciple. But in the book itself, he describes himself in this way. The author does. Simply as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I love that description. It's a very humble description. And basically, I think what he is saying is that it's uh, the disciple. He is basically saying, I'm just the guy who was lucky enough to be loved by Jesus. And I love him. And I know him. And I want you to love him and know him as well. So he wrote this book, we think, late in his life, probably uh, late in the... Um, the first century, that means John would have been an elderly man. We believe, according to church tradition, that he is the longest surviving disciple, lived to an old age, probably wrote this gospel at the end of the first century in a place uh, in Ephesus where God had called him to, uh, to the mission. And, um, and he shares these beautiful, beautiful truths with us. I'm so glad he did, and I know you are as well. Well, Let's turn to the prologue, John chapter 1, and we're going to pick up here with this very poetic and profound prologue where John says a whole lot in just a few concise words. But before we read the prologue, we need to understand that in John's gospel, like all of the gospels, He's really introducing, the writer is introducing a key theme early in the book. 
For instance, Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus. The family lineage of Jesus is being traced all the way back to Abraham. And Abraham, you might remember, was the forefather of the Jewish people, the great patriarch, the Jewish patriarch. Well, Matthew is written primarily to Jews. It's the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Quotes scriptures, talks about prophets, things like this that only Jews would have been familiar with. Well, the reason he's doing that and tracing, starting with the genealogy going back to Abraham is because his Gospels, one of the great themes is that he wants to show the Jews that Jesus really is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And that's much of what his gospel is about. Mark, on the other hand, starts his gospel off with the baptism of Jesus and the public ministry of Jesus. And right after Jesus' baptism, we see God the Father speaking directly to his son Jesus. And he says, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And so Mark's gospel sets the stage for this theme where Jesus is the suffering servant who is doing the will of the Father, pleasing the Father at every step of the way. Luke starts his gospel with some of the foretelling of the coming of Jesus and then uh, with the Christmas story. And then right after that, he has his own genealogy. But he traces Jesus' lineage, his family tree, all the way back to Adam, the first man. And that represents a key theme for Luke. Luke was telling us that Jesus was the son of man who came to be the savior for all people everywhere. Luke, we believe, was a Gentile writing primarily to a Gentile audience. And he wanted all people everywhere to know that Jesus could be, should be their savior. Well, how about John? How does John start his gospel, and what are some of the key themes that we're going to find in it? That's very important. Well, John actually goes back to the very beginning, not just the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not just the beginning of humanity, but to the very beginning. And that's what we're going to see as we open up this book and look at the prologue. Let's turn there now, John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So let's pause here for just a moment. John is clearly using a metaphor called the word to represent someone very important, very special. And this in the Greek language is known as logos. That's actually the word that was written. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. So who in the world and what in the world is this logos? Well, in Greek philosophy, logos really referred to the organizing principle of the universe. They saw, the Greek philosophers looked at creation, looked at the universe, and they saw that it was very organized, very structured, and had a rational concept behind it. And so logos was the word that they described to to talk about that organizing principle. The Jews, of course, knew exactly who was behind that organizing principle, and it was God. In fact, Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. 
And so they knew that the Logos was God, the great creator, this rational being who brought order and structure to his creation. So who is John referring to in the Logos? Really all of this. He's referring to this fact that there was a trinity. In fact, we get a pretty good clue of who he's talking about. If you look a little bit farther down in John's prologue at verse 14, it says the word, meaning the Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what he is saying is that the Logos actually became a human being, became flesh, and lived among human beings, and that we see later that he was God's son, the Father's son, and that he also now reveals the Father's glory, the Father's grace, and represents truth. So who is he talking about? Well, of course, he's talking about Jesus, the incarnate God. God came to this earth fully God, but then became fully man. And he did that, of course, in the person of Jesus. So as we read John 1.1, we can simply uh, insert the word Jesus for the word logos, or the word that's in your scripture. So in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, and Jesus was with God in the beginning. It's talking about Jesus. So the first key point here that we need to understand is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's making that crystal clear right here in the beginning. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He had no beginning, and he will have no end. And that's very, very important, this idea of Jesus being eternal, but also being the Son of God and being God himself. Well, then we look at the next verse, verse 3, and it says, Through him, meaning Jesus, the Logos, all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And so what that is telling us is that Jesus is the all-powerful creator of the universe. Now, often when we think about the creator, at least uh, for me, I often think of that as the Father. The Father is the primary agent of creation, God the Father. I know all three were part of it, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, but I've always kind of attributed creation to the Father. He was the main agent of it, but that's not what we're being told here. We're being told that Jesus was the main uh, agent of creation. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And that is echoed in other places in Scripture. In fact, Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'll just read that for you. It says, For in him, talking about Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, again, is the Logos, the one whom all things hold together, and he is the all-powerful creator. 
And what we know, John is also here taking us actually back to the very beginning of the Bible. It's clear that he wants his readers to be thinking about Genesis 1-1. Because when we read the words that he starts with in the beginning, what does that remind you of? It reminds you of the beginning of the story of the Bible. And in there we find in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he begins to describe all of the specifics goes through the different days and what God made in each of those days. We come to day six, Genesis 1, verse 26. It's very interesting. Before the creator makes mankind, it says, let us create mankind in our image. Think about the pronouns that are being used. Let us create man in our image. Those are plural pronouns. And so this, I believe, was a reference to the Trinity right at the very beginning. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But it was really Jesus, the Son, who was tasked with the responsibility and the privilege of speaking creation into order, into being. It was Jesus who is the all-powerful creator of the universe. And then we see, if we look at verse 4, John 1 verse 4 says, In him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So Jesus, here's another point, Jesus is the life giver and the life sustainer. Again, if we go back to Genesis and all of the creation account. When we get to Genesis chapter 2, we also are told again about God creating God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through Jesus primarily creating Adam. And he tells us that Adam was formed from the dust of the earth and that God then breathed life into him and he became a living being. And so God is the one who brings life. Jesus is the one who gives life to all living creatures, and in him was life. And when we think about life in the Bible, we often kind of naturally default to eternal life. And that's absolutely true. Jesus and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit did come to give life eternal. We know that. In fact, just a, a few chapters later in John, we have one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but instead receive everlasting life or eternal life. That is a big part of the life that Jesus is talking about. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. But it's not limited to eternal life. John, in John chapter 10, verse 10, he also talks about this thing called abundant life. He says, in him you'll have life to the full. Abundant life. And that's really talking about our earthly lives here and now. If you are a believer... We also see in John's gospel, John chapter 14, he tells us about what I think is one of the greatest miracles in all the Bible. And that's when you and I come to faith in Jesus, that he actually not gives his Holy Spirit just with us, but within us. He places him within us. 
God's Holy Spirit. And through him, we can begin to experience abundant life through God right here now. We don't have to wait until we die and go to heaven. And so the life that is truly life is how Paul describes it at the end of 1 Timothy is available to you and me right now as believers. That's part of the life that Jesus came to bring. And I can tell you just as a a fellow believer, somebody that's had the privilege of walking with the Lord now most of my life, I met him as an older child. And so now I've lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, believed in Jesus, followed Jesus for over 50 years. Can't believe it. Couldn't be true, but it is. And I can tell you just from my own life experience that it is so good to walk with Jesus. The life that he gives is absolutely the best life on earth that a human being can experience. And I know that not just from my own personal experience, but from walking with many of you, being a pastor, walking through life's journeys. And even when it gets hard and difficult and troublesome, we know that he is with us and he is for us and he's providing. It is the best life possible on this earth. And we look forward to eternal life that's coming. He is the one who gives life and who sustains life. And then look at verse five. Kind of comes back on this idea of light. It says that that life was the light of mankind. And then verse five says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, Jesus, we're gonna be told later in John, is the light of the world who overcomes spiritual darkness. Well, what is this spiritual darkness that's being talked about? Well, it's really also, it goes back again to Genesis. If you read through those early chapters of Genesis where we have, after we have the creation account, we come to Genesis 3. And it's in Genesis 3 where everything changes from being so, so very good to being so very bad. Because it was in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and committed the first sin. And when that happened, everything changed for the worse. Not only were Adam and Eve separated from their intimate closeness with God, but we find out that pain and suffering and hardship becomes part of the human experience at that point. We see that all of creation kind of turns against mankind and becomes a very dangerous place for us to live in. We have pain at childbirth that we're told about that Eve had to to face. Work became burdensome and toilsome when previously it was very rich and fulfilling and rewarding. And then we see death enters into the human experience as a result of the fall, a consequence of the fall. And evil is allowed to rule and reign. John himself writes in one of his letters later that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. This explains a lot about our experience in the here and now. We live in a fallen, broken, sinful, sin-filled evil world that's under the control of the evil one. And that explains a lot, doesn't it? 
why we have to go through hardship, why we have to go through suffering, why this world can be so dangerous, so hard, why we have to experience death and loss of loved ones and dear friends. It's all because of this spiritual darkness that was really ultimately the result of sin. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve's sin. We've joined them. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when that happened, we opened the door to darkness. But Jesus came to rescue us. He was the light of the world. And he came and the darkness, the spiritual darkness and all of the evil and all of the sin and all of its consequences could not overcome him. He has prevailed and he is the conqueror. And we must rejoice and be glad in him. And now there's a choice to be made. And John introduces us to this choice that he will remind us of time and time again throughout the gospel. Look at verse 9. He says, the true light, talking about Jesus, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Many did not believe in him, is what he's saying. He came to that which was his own, meaning the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. And we read about that in this gospel and the others. Many of the Jewish people, including their religious leaders, most did not receive him, did not believe in him. He says he came, but he said, but he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Means born of the spirit. Same thing Jesus was telling Nicodemus that we'll read about and study in John chapter three. You have to be born of God. How, do you, how does that happen? Well, he tells us right here. It happens through belief and through receiving him. And I think those are two different but closely related things. When we talk about belief, we're talking about believing in really the the core truths, the intellectual facts that Scripture reveals. We must believe that Jesus was God incarnate. When he came to this earth, he was fully man and fully God. And he lived among us. And he lived the perfect life among us and showed us how to perfectly relate to our perfect God. But then we read about that he had a sacrificial death for us. He took our place. He died for our sins on the cross. But he did not stay dead. The Bible tells us that he was dead, very dead. He went into a tomb for three days, proving he was dead, physically dead. But on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving that he had the power to conquer death and to deliver on all the promises that he has made to his people. And then after some resurrection appearances, he ascended to heaven, where right now he sits on the throne on the right hand of God. And he's ruling and he's ready and he's waiting for the time when he's going to come back. 
Those are the facts of the scriptures about Jesus and the gospel that we must understand and believe. But then it says we need to receive him. And I believe this is moving more from the head concepts, the intellectual concepts, to the heart concepts. Receiving Jesus really implies that we are making a life commitment to him. He's not just supposed to be our savior, he's to be our Lord. And that's what receiving him means, that we're going to make him the Lord of our lives, we're gonna give our lives to his service, and we're gonna be his ambassadors. And so what John is telling us here is a very key concept, and that is that people need to understand that Jesus is the one, the one that we believe in and the one that we receive, and by doing that, we are reborn spiritually. That's how it happens. And when that does happen, we're told in Scripture, and a lot of it's right here in John's Gospel, that everything changes for the person who believes and receives him. We go from being children of the devil, is how we're described, to being what? Children of God. We go from death to life. We going, go from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. We go from being guilty and responsible for our own sin which is enough to separate us for eternity from God, we go from being guilty of that and separated from God to being heirs of Christ, fellow heirs of Christ. That, those are extraordinary things that happen when you and I make this decision. It's absolutely the greatest decision. If you haven't yet made it, my hope, my prayer for you is that even today, Today could be your day of salvation. Could be, should be, would be if you make this decision. It's really a pretty simple decision. You just have to believe what we've talked about and then make that life commitment. You can do that, that life commitment through a prayer, a simple prayer to God, a sincere prayer. And when that happens, then everything changes for you and you begin to receive all of these glorious benefits and he places his spirit within you. And you began to experience the life that is truly life that will last for you for all eternity. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 1115. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.